Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. How many of you uh, remember your early sport league experience? Uh, And you come and you are excited to be in a team sport experience. Um, Maybe it was basketball. And and you're excited to be on a team. You have watched a little bit on television. And you know they all run around and kind of do things together. And you get to that first practice. And all you do is dribble. And have a layup line and do passes, and you're like, we're not doing any of that team stuff. It's all individual drills. In some ways, that is what chapters 1, 2, and 3 of this seminar was like. We were working on our fundamentals, the kinds of things that if we're going to get to the team aspect of decision-making that have to be in place, we have to understand the challenges of decision-making. We need to understand what God's will is and how we pursue it. We need to know what it means to be wise and mature individual decision-makers. And then there comes that point in practice where you start, you start to learn the zone defense, or you start to learn a motion offense, and you go, ah, this is what it means to be on a team. This is why we actually get a jersey and we you know, get to be all together. Um, that's what chapters 4 and 5 are like. This is where you're like, ah, this is why we have rings and we, I changed my name to share His name and we're going to live in the same house. This is where that joint decision-making comes in. Uh, Those are the aspects we talk about in chapter 4 with consensus decision-making and chapter 5 with headship and submission. So we look at consensus decision-making. And here, what we mean is joint decision-making that's not rooted in headship and submission. Uh, And to start with this idea of consensus, I thought it would be good if we began uh, with a word of dissent. Uh, We'll start with a quote uh, from Margaret Thatcher, uh, the Iron Lady. Interestingly enough, one of the first dates I went on with Sally uh, was to hear a speech from Margaret Thatcher. Not at all because I was interested in history. I was interested in Sally, and she liked history. And if listening to Margaret Thatcher meant I got to be with her, then hey, that's great. Uh, We'll hear from the Iron Lady. Uh, But she says, uh, to me... Consensus seems to be a process of abandoning all beliefs, principles, values, and policies. Anything that would make us individuals. So it is something to which no one believes and to which no one objects. And oftentimes you use a word like this and you get very polarized positions on it. Some people, they hear a word like consensus and they think it is the epitome of all things good. If only everyone could get along and agree on what kind of world was best. If only as a husband and wife we could you know, have all of these shared values and every decision we just saw eye to eye on it and we could live in happy bliss, happily ever after. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, and other people who 
um, they would probably call themselves more real or cynical or however we may view it, uh, they, they view consensus as the encapsulation of everything that is wrong with the world. Uh, trying to get everyone to agree just results in this bland, sterile uniformity with no conviction, no passion, nothing defines us as individuals where I can say, this is who I am and this is what I stand for and this is what makes me unique. And I think whenever we consider something as uh, powerful as consensus outside of a larger context, we tend to get that kind of polarized view. And that's why we're going to take the time to examine consensus in the context of wise, healthy, individual decision-making and headship and decision-making because we're not going to be able to put everything in the area of consensus. Uh, But I will say, uh, I think in a healthy, growing marriage, uh, we will do more and more through consensus. And I really think that's what most of us want. Uh, Most of the really enjoyable parts of marriage happen through consensus, happen through friendship. If we didn't inherently believe that to be true, we would have been happy to remain single. But we weren't. Uh, We got to the point where we said, I think doing life with you, us doing this thing of life together, making decisions and, and going through, it would be better with you sharing life than it would be alone. And so we, we naturally find it to be better. Uh, we get into it, and sometimes we get a little annoyed with it, uh, but I think we know it is a more satisfying way to do life. And I think Paul Tripp gives us a good metaphor to get started with here. He says, I don't know why we think uh, that the most comprehensive and long-term of all human relationships can stay alive and thrive without the same commitment we make to our gardens. Perhaps one of the most fundamental sins that we all commit in our marriages is the sin of inattention. And I love that he uses the metaphor of garden because it's not as if there are advanced skills of gardening. You you don't ever watch and there's like a gardener draft where like this person has a lot of gardening upside and a lot of gardening potential. Did you see how they wielded that spade as they patted the ground ever so perfectly? Gardening is not about skill. It's about values. If I value my garden, I will tend to it. And it is pretty self-evident what needs to be done. And if I value my garden... I will enjoy the things that I do in caring for it, even if they're not the most fun things in the world, because I see the outcome as being worth it. And the skills aren't that complicated. And I think there's a strong parallel there with marital consensus. Because friendship, and again, I'll use consensus and friendship uh, largely as synonyms, It's about more than liking the same things or wanting to do things the same way. We know that's true. That's why we say opposites attract. And we don't consider that phrase to be an oxymoron. Um, It's just an accepted proverb. uh, That somehow it's our differences that bring this kind of life and energy to a relationship. And that what we share in... What we enjoy in one another means more to us uh, than the differences. 
And so I would say it this way. One of the things that marital consensus requires or that it entails is enjoying your spouse more than you enjoy your preferences. And I want to give us four values that I think unpack that. So that as you listen to this section on consensus, that you don't get in your mind that this is some kind of advanced skill training that I need. Here are some basic values that I need to hold that whatever skills that we talk about are just applications of these four values. And the first uh, is that we value marriage more than whatever subject we're talking about. So let me ask this. What is it that makes a conversation safe? We've all had that moment where we're in a conversation and we just get this natural sense of, "Uh uh-oh, this is not good, this does not feel safe. What is it that's going on in that moment? Well, I would say a conversation is safe when I know the other person values our relationship more than the subject or the outcome of what we're talking about. As soon as the outcome or the subject becomes more important than our relationship, safety is gone. And whether we could articulate it or not, we all naturally make that assessment. What's more important, the subject or our relationship? And whenever the significance of the subject becomes greater than the relationship, there becomes this sense of pressure, this sense of stress. And when that takes over, we get this impaired, jumbled way of thinking, and we pick up really bad relational habits. And we, probably the clearest example that I could come up with that we could all relate to is our first job interview. We go into that first job interview. And it is obvious that the subject is more important than the relationship for the employer. They want the best employee, and they're interviewing a bunch of people, and they don't have a sense of allegiance to me. And so I know the subject is more important than the relationship. And so I go into it, and I'm nervous, and I'm not thinking clearly, and I repeat myself, and I leave stuff out, and I wish I would have said that, and I don't know whether I'm supposed to stand up and shake your hand when I sit down. Do I wait till you sit down? And there's just all of these kind of awkward relational habits that hit because the subject is more important than the relationship. And that's why in a marriage, I think it's incredibly important that we establish an environment where the marriage is clearly more important than whatever subject that we would come to. And if we ask, what does that look like? Uh, Well, we might ask ourselves, what are the verbal and nonverbal indicators that each of us give that reveal a subject is becoming too valuable? For me personally, uh, I am not one that when I feel hurt or upset, that I tend to get demonstrative. Uh, I don't get kind of loud and accusatory. I am much more one to be quiet and sulk. Uh, What's wrong? Nothing. Uh, You know, just, I hate to admit, that's me. Um, So part of of what that means is that whenever I'm quiet, again, it may just be that I'm tired. Uh, It may be that not much interesting has happened. It may be that I'm distracted by something that's coming up and I'm thinking about that. But I've come to realize that Silence on my part can make Sally uncomfortable. 
And so whenever I'm quiet, I try to be aware and, and just let her know, hey, I'm, I'm thinking about this thing that's coming up. I'm not trying to punish. Nothing's going on. I'm not upset. I'm just quiet right now. And so being aware of that kind of thing is one of the ways uh, that I establish an atmosphere. Uh, another thing about me is at home, I'm usually not this way in other social environments, uh, but I like to be really playful uh, and just kind of goofy off of conversation and making word plays off things that my kids say. And if I'm not playful, then that's usually an indicator that either I'm sad, I'm hurt, I'm distracted, I'm worried. Uh, and so my playfulness is just part of the environment. And even if something's not particularly funny, but just knowing that this is a way that I show my family everything's okay. And so, uh, second value. Value unity over preference. So another question. What is the difference between an acquaintance and a friend? Uh, well, acquaintances tend to be very dependent upon shared interest. Uh, I have acquaintances uh, when I go to a ball game and we all like baseball. When I go to a conference and we all have a counseling interest. Or, you know, when I go to, or I go somewhere and my kids, are, there's other parents there and we both have kids the same age and we're acquaintances. And acquaintances are largely dependent upon shared interest in order to have a quality relationship. In friendship, uh, the relationship begins to take precedent over preference. And there's something about the relationship that is enjoyed that is greater than just the mutual interest that we have. And I think that is hugely important when it comes to marriage. Because you come to a lot of marriage events, and they begin to think that the key to a marriage is completely honoring preferences. And I'm all for honoring preferences. But a lot of what drew us together, if opposites really do attract, is not the things that we share in common, but the things that make us different. And when we elevate our preferences, what happens is our preferences become a kind of law. Uh, and if our spouse obeys that law, then they are, or at least they feel, loved. And if they don't honor that preference, then it begins to come across as if they are not loved. And as opposed to having a gospel-centered marriage, our preferences begin to create this kind of law-based marriage. Now, and so the kind of questions we would ask there, uh, what are your strongest pet peeves and preferences? Usually they come from your strengths. And how do you ensure that they are serving your marriage instead of expecting your marriage to serve you? Again, for me, um, some of my strengths and also my pet peeves lie in the area of structure and order. Now, I like for things to run really smoothly and have a plan. And I remember the first time my wife and I took one of those weekend getaway kind of enrichment trips, just the two of us. Those things are supposed to be good, right? Um, no, I ruined that trip. Uh, I had the clipboard of fun. I was so looking forward to it. And when I look forward to something, you know what I do with it. I plan it. And there was, I was going to make this trip perfect. And perfect meant overkill. And there was so much to do and there was a schedule so that we were going to be able to get it all in. And it just, it wasn't good. 
And I begin to realize that, that my preference here just does not serve our marriage well. And I need to be able to let that go. Uh, and I need to be able to have areas of my marriage that I see that are good, that have nothing to do with my preferences. And so uh, when, when I hear my kids just echoing compliments to my wife, uh, when uh, the cute thing with my, um, with my kindergartner, uh, he went through a stage where he would say, Mama, and he'd pause, and she would say, What? And he'd say, I love you. And we're like, oh, that's sweet. And then finally one day he fessed up. He said, Mama, if I say your name and I forget what I'm going to say, I just say I love you. Um, and the fact that that was there, that it was his natural thing, that if I don't know what else to say, I say I love you, uh, I think that's a marker of things being good. Or just to do it again, Papa, do it again. Can we do it again? Okay, that is not on schedule. That is not part of the plan. But the fact that there is that kind of freedom and enjoyment it has nothing to do with my preferences, but it is good. It is a sign of closeness and unity. And I need to be able to value that and celebrate that uh, if I'm going to have a healthy, long-standing marriage. It, and I think it's in light of that that we can hear what Gary Thomas says. He says, if I'm married only for my happiness, uh, for my preferences being met, and my happiness wanes for whatever reason, one little spark will burn the entire forest of my relationship. I'll begin to get dissatisfied. I'll begin to get disgruntled. I'll begin to think the whole thing's bad. But if my aim is to proclaim and model God's ministry of reconciliation, my endurance will be fireproof. If I can see those things that are good, even when they don't hit my preferences, and I can value them and stay close, then the longevity of my marriage is so much more protected. Third value, I value relationship over certainty. When we're in decision-making, in those areas where we don't naturally agree, there is this reality that the future is always in doubt. We just don't know what's coming up and we disagree on what would make it best. But what we have to realize is that uncertainty is not the enemy of consensus. Uncertainty is not the enemy of friendship. Uncertainty is when we become the enemy of consensus. Because when things are uncertain, that's when I'd rather know, that's when I'd rather control, that's when I'd rather make sure things go like I think they ought to, than to love, than to listen, than to honor, than to be patient. And so, if our, if our friendship skills wane uh, during times of uncertainty, uh, then we're either going to move towards control uh, or codependency. We're either just going to keep the peace because we don't want anybody to be upset because things are uncertain. I just, okay, I'd rather just kind of give in than have the conversation and, and let you know what I'm really thinking. Or when things get uncertain, I'm going to try to be controlling and I'm going to make sure things go as they ought to go. Uh, and we just need to know uh, on that spectrum, which of those two ends uh, do we naturally lean towards? Uh, for my wife and I, we're both towards the controlling end of the spectrum. 
Uh, and we're like, how does that work? We actually had somebody over for dinner the other night. They were watching us. And they were like, how did the two of you ever get married? Because you both have like this orderly system thing. And it works for us. And we love it. it uh, but we need to know where we're at on that. Uh, value four. Uh, we value participation over efficiency. Um, it is quicker and easier to make decisions by yourself. Uh, but that convenience comes at a cost. And that cost is buy-in. Uh, you know, we can do a relationship without consensus. And it may run like a finely tuned machine. Most don't, but it might. But if it does, it will still feel like a machine instead of a romance. And so, you know, the kinds of questions that we do here is just knowing, what do I value more? Uh, do I value participation? Kind of verbally processing things through, and I just like to talk it out and us both know why we did everything the way that we do it. Or do I value efficiency? And how does that change by decision? Because it may. There may be some areas where your preferences change in that style. Uh, that's why we took the time in chapter 1 to go over some of the challenges and allow the two of you to talk that through so that you know where you're at. And then do you allow time for these kinds of decisions? Uh, that's why in chapter 3 we talk about in that individual decision making, managing the basics well. And one of those basics was time. Uh, because one of the reasons why couples don't do a good job in consensus decision making is because they just don't leave time to talk to one another. Now, uh, as we begin to transition into process here a little bit, I want you to hear from Winston Smith. He says, love is the bedrock principle. No matter what your culture, traditions, or preferences are, the Bible teaches that in every relationship, your first responsibility is to love. And you can't make wise decisions about how to love your wife, or I would say, or your husband, if you don't know what her life is like. You must know her hopes, dreams, fears, wants, strengths, and weaknesses. Again, those are going to change over a lifetime, so it is a continual knowing. But when it comes to knowing, and it comes to decision-making, we start to ask ourselves the question, what kind of what kind of decisions fit in consensus? You know, if we had three baskets and we were sorting our laundry, and one basket was individual decision-making, and another basket was consensus decision-making, and another basket was headship and submission, and we were just taking decisions and going, which one goes in which basket? Kind of listen to this list and see if you can sort the laundry. Budget. Home decoration. Job change parenting strategy, dinner schedule, vacation, uh, time devoted to hobbies, clothing purchases, what to watch on television, uh, how much of our money do we save and how much money do we give, um, what small group do we join, um, what ministries are we a part of individually and as a couple, how many kids are we going to have, uh, how do we discipline those kids, and so we ask the question, which of those decisions fit in consensus? Now, in some ways, that's a trick question because I don't think that's the best way to word the question. I think it's better to ask, how do we arrange our life 
so that more and more of our life is being decided through consensus. And I think we have to, we have to, we have to parse some things out here if we're going to do that well. And I want to give us two levels of consensus. Uh, level one is what I would call pre-consensus. These are things that we agree on in advance, but largely we execute differently, independently. And so in that sense, we don't make all of our consensus decisions together. You say, what does that look like? Well, one example is your budget. You make a budget. We sit down as a couple. We agree on how we're going to allot our money. But most of our money is not spent, both of us together, looking at it, co-signing every check, calling one another in the grocery, saying, this is how much it costs. Is it okay for me to spend it? I want to go to Starbucks. Is that okay? We, our budget, we make pre-consensus that we execute independently. A lot of that is also true of parenting. We come up with our approach to parenting, uh, but a significant number of our parenting decisions is made between us and our kid and the other spouse may not be there. Now you say, when is this pre-consensus most relevant? Well, your first year of marriage, when you don't have the kind of habits and routines and systems and you're creating all of that for the first time, uh, that's what tends to make the first year of marriage great uh, and to make the first year of marriage hard. Uh, it's because we're trying to figure out uh, all of these pre-consensus things for the first time. And then after that, whenever you go through a major transition, uh, maybe it's when you move to another city because of a job or when you have kids or when you retire, and all of those systems that you had, they get altered a little bit. But in pre-consensus, once we have agreement there, Decision-making is much more about having a good character and just being faithful to what we decided uh, than this active, interactive dialogue between the two of us. And if we don't have some of that, then decision-making becomes exhausting. Um, but then we hit level two. Uh, there are that other decisions that don't fit with just managing life well uh, that are unique decisions that we make. Uh, again, some of those will be relatively small. Uh, how do we decorate our house? Uh, what hobbies do we engage in and how much time can we give to them? Uh, some of them will be bigger. Like what job do we take? Or if it's a big ministry that we're getting ready to be a part in that's going to take a significant part of our time. Yeah, and we say, what kinds of things fit there? Uh, just a few thoughts here. Uh, Non-moral decisions. Again, if it's a moral decision... Uh, we don't get to outvote God by two-thirds vote. You know, husband gets one vote, wife gets one vote, God gets one vote. Nah, two-thirds vote. Sorry, God. Um, no, we, we don't get to do that in our marriage. Um, but most often, it's just going to be where we differ um, or are unclear about objective or preferences. So we may decide we want to spend three hours and about $50 on a date. We've got to decide what we're going to do on that date uh, that's going to be mutually satisfying and enriching. Uh, with our parenting, we may say, this is how we want to approach things when our kids are defiant. This is how we want to approach things uh, when our kids are just immature. 
But then we come to that moment where the kids only got about half the nap that they were supposed to get. They're having a bit of a meltdown. They are stomping their foot. And we're trying to decide, is this immaturity and they just don't have the self-control because of the lack of sleep? Or do they know and able to do what they've been asked to do and we need to deal with this as defiant? There's still that aspect of us having to agree on those kinds of things. Yet, uh, decisions that require mutual execution. Again, the more the two of us are going to work together on a decision, the more we should do that through consensus. Because if, if there are things that we're mutually involved in, uh, that we're both going to do. Again, if my wife is just painting a bathroom and that's what's going on and she's telling me about it, let me know what color, great. No problem with that. If there's a certain part of that project that she wants me to play a, a larger role in in terms of helping, then that mutual participation, it, it requires more consensus. And if we did that through individual decision-making, then that doesn't honor uh, the marriage, the covenant, the one flesh relationship, it just begins to neglect or dishonor it. Or if we do that primarily through headship, and the husband is just saying, this is how I think things ought to be done, uh, then I think that's what Jesus would say in terms of um, leadership not being executed well when he was talking in Luke 20, I'm sorry, Matthew 20, 24 to 20, uh, 28, we'd say, Leaders should not lord it over those that they lead. So we want to do those things through consensus. And then those areas that affect family balance. Um, you know, when, for us in this last season we've been going through of uh, our kids being involved in sports league, that, that's one of the things that as we do it, it impacted just the balance of our schedule. Uh, and this is, I would encourage you, View these as great moments to disciple your family. These are great moments where, as a family, we sit down and we talk about what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourself? Uh, that, um, you know, I'm talking to my boys, guys, this is something that's really important to mama, and we want to make sure that we set aside time because she enjoys this, and this is a way that we honor and serve her, and that means we don't do these things so that we protect uh, the time for her to do that. Uh, those should be very positive and uplifting conversations where we are instructing about the values of our home. Now, and so if that's the kind of decision, we begin to ask, what is the process? And like we did with individual decision-making, I, I want to discuss process in a way that is more lifestyle than step-by-step, because... Most often, we're not going to go through all seven steps that I give you. There will be some decisions that are larger decisions or more uh, contentious decisions that you go through formal steps. But more often, I want you to hear this as a lifestyle that becomes the atmosphere of your home and family. And so step one, define the decision. The most obvious things are often the easiest to neglect or to forget. Um, I can tell you, most often in marriage counseling, or I would say very frequently at least, in hearing a couple uh, argue with one another, one of the statements that I'll make is, you guys aren't having the same conversation. You're talking about the same thing, whether or not this or that should have been purchased, 
But what you're talking about is your freedom to make that purchase. And what you're talking about is the security that you don't feel when money is spent in a way uh, that you don't know about. So you're talking about security. You're talking about freedom. You're not having the same conversation. You're on the same subject. But the longer we talk not having defined the subject, the more we begin to argue. Uh, As we argue... Uh, our spouse begins to come across increasingly unreasonable. Uh, This sense of hopelessness sets in, and we get these really bad relational habits. And so defining the subject, what is it that we're trying to agree on, is hugely important. Step two, uh, listen to each other. And I know you're thinking, brilliant, you know, that's awesome. I'm so glad I came. I needed somebody to tell me that. Um, You know, is that step novel? No. Is it revolutionary? Absolutely. Uh, As I tried to hit so hard in the communication seminar, I would easily say 80% of communication problems are listening problems. They are not articulation problems. I would say this very strongly, and I do not say this as hyperbole. I would ask you to take me very literally. You cannot be a good spouse and a bad listener. You cannot be a good spouse and a bad listener. Because listening takes humility. And what does that look like? It means when I listen, I really want to understand where you're coming from, not just get you to change to where I want you to be. That kind of listening takes mutual participation. And I think this is one where oftentimes we get confused. And to help clarify that, I would, I would invite you to think of listening as a form of serving. When I listen, it is a way that I serve my spouse. Uh, in Galatians 5.13, says we are to serve one another. Now, one thing we know about one another commands in the New Testament is that they are to be mutual, they are to be balanced. And oftentimes, we get it in our mind that if, if I let my spouse serve me, or if I speak, That is a form of pride. And it's not. In a one another consensus, mutual relationship, uh, this should be balanced. And so if we're going to do this both ways, it means that I must speak in order to give you the opportunity to listen, and you must speak in order to give me the opportunity to listen. And it also means fairness. uh, Accurately representing what your spouse says. Now, as we talk about this area of serving, I think it's important what uh, Carolyn Mahaney says here. She says, I often become so preoccupied with the duties and responsibilities of my marriage that I fail to nurture tenderness and passion in my relationship with my husband. I get so busy serving him that I overlook enjoying him. And the only thing that I would nuance about what she said there is she makes it sound like those are two different things. That... I should enjoy serving my spouse as I hear about what's important to her. Uh, As I work to make opportunities for her dreams to come true as well as my own. That is part of the enjoying one another is the serving. Uh, And if I do not enjoy serving, 
then that is a character issue for me that I need to be primarily concerned about in my walk with God more than going, what's wrong with my marriage? Um, And so again, serving should be enjoying. But we listen to each other. Uh, Step three, uh, differentiate opinions from facts. Now again, this doesn't mean that opinions aren't important, but we, we need to bring in and find out what are the facts on this decision that we're trying to make. Uh, we'll bring in the perspective and opinions and values in just a moment, but, but first we agree on what the facts are, uh, because if not, there's going to be a sense of confusion or mistrust. So we define the decision, we listen, uh, we gather the facts that are relevant, and then I would say, begin from where you agree. Begin from where you're closest together. Um, don't start from where you're furthest apart. I think oftentimes we see the problem is where we disagree, and so we start there. Um, and the, the visual that I get uh, is when, um, when, uh, when we go to visit family. Uh, our family lives in Texas, so that is uh, about a 20-hour haul. And when you got kids... Going on a trip like that feels like moving um, because the amount of stuff, especially when they're infants, is just crazy. So we'd have to get one of those put on top of your vehicle uh, bags that you can zip up. And by the time you put stuff in there, the, the zipper's just really far apart on the end. And if I came to the end of the zipper and tried to pull it together and then reach back way over here and tug, I'm not going to get anything done. I need to come to where the zipper is already closest apart or closest together, and pull that together, and then tug. And then continue to pull that together, and tug. And that's the kind of approach that we're taking here. And so make a list of the things that you already agree on. Now, if in doing that, uh, you say, our disagreements are larger than our agreements, uh, then chances are, you either have unrealistic expectations of each other, or you're just not managing the basics of life well. Uh, In some way, we are being immature or unrealistic. Uh, And and we need to step back, and it's no longer about the decision itself. It's where are we not being realistic or mature. Uh, But I think the vast majority of the time, for couples who are being mature, they're going to find that what we agree on is larger than what we disagree on. And that's going to give a sense of trust. It's going to give you a sense that compromise is really not that much of a dirty word. Um, Now, um, step five. Uh, At that point, we we assess what is at stake uh, for each person. Um, And again, we we start by asking the question, what's at stake for each one of us? Again, if it's a decision about whether or not you're going to homeschool children, well, then there's probably more at stake uh, for the spouse who's going to serve as the teacher. Uh, if we're talking about adding something to our schedule, then there's probably more at stake uh, for the spouse who is under more stress during that season of life. Now, again, I would say if a couple cannot agree on what is at stake for each one in a way that that they felt like you really get me and understand, then I think there is a bigger problem than whatever decision is being made. At that point, our ability to know and understand and honor what's going on in each other's life, we need to step back and get that right. 
But again, I think for the vast majority of the time, for couples who are being mature, they're going to be able to see what's at stake. And then we weigh the decision towards the one who has more at stake. And I think that's just a more mature way to go about thinking how do we, how do we navigate these differences uh, than the way that maybe we most commonly think, where we go, okay, what's the halfway point between our two positions? Or this time you'll get your way, and next time I'll get my way. And then we start to argue. I feel like you've gotten your way more than I've gotten my way. And we start to sound kind of immature and tit for tat. Um, and I think if we weigh the decision towards the person who has more at stake, it allows us to approach it in a way that feels like we are two adults having a conversation. Um, and so step six, uh, understand the when. And I think it's easy in this kind of conversation to begin to lose sight of the when because our tendency um, most of the time is to think of this as a negotiation instead of building consensus. And so in a negotiation, when we're trying to assess what is the when, uh, we ask questions like, how did I make out? How much of what I could have gotten did I actually not get? Uh, were there any benefits that I could have held out for that, that I just left on the table because I, I, didn't, I didn't push hard enough? Now that's a great set of questions to ask if you're buying a car or if you're buying a house. That is not a good set of questions to ask if you're making a decision with your spouse. So you ask, what do when questions sound like? with my spouse. I want to ask, how did we make out? How did this outcome serve our family? Did we belabor this discussion to a point that we cost ourselves more trust than this subject merited? And when we ask those kinds of questions, the win may not be either one of ours first choice. And in those situations, I think a huge part of consensus, a huge part of love is being able to be motivated to see a choice succeed that was not your first preference. I think that is one where we show that this relationship means more to me than the decision or the outcome. Because I can be motivated, I can give myself because of my love for you to see an outcome succeed that was not my first choice. And that's what Paul Tripp is talking about when he says love calls us beyond the borders of our own wants, needs, and feelings. Love calls us to be willing to invest time, energy, money, resources, personability, and gifts for the good of another. And so you say, what if we go through that and it comes time to make a decision and we're not yet at the same place? We don't agree. Well, step seven, headship and submission is not failure. Now, we do want to get to the point where a larger and larger percentage of our decision is being made through consensus. I think that's a sign of a healthy marriage. But I don't think it would ever be 100%. And I don't think that's just because of the fall. I think some of that is God's design. And if we begin to think every decision has to be made through consensus, then our consensus begins to be corrupted by fear. Because we think, oh no, there's no other way. If we don't agree on everything, something's wrong with us. We're broken. And whenever we make a decision out of fear, we don't trust the outcome. And we don't trust the person we're making that decision with nearly as much. 
And so I think a healthy view of headship and submission uh, lets us look at that. But in light of consensus, I think we can hear what Dave Harvey was saying. If spouses are committed to one another's pleasure, nobody goes to sleep disappointed. And that is what we're striving for through this section on consensus. And so you ask me, what should we get from this chapter? We should get a true desire to strive for consensus and know what that would look like. But in our striving for consensus, we do not want to elevate a good thing to be the main thing or the only thing. Because doing so would rob us of our individuality. Uh, Our differences would become a problem to be fixed instead of something to be celebrated and enjoyed. Um, And so we never want to forget that it's our differences that just bring life uh, and enjoyment and interest to a lifelong marriage. And I think it's honoring the principles of consensus and the way that we hear and get to know and serve one another in that process that really allows us to protect those differences and not creating bland uniformity.